Hello, and welcome to Asia in Washington, a podcast of the Edwin O. Reichardt Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins University Sites. Our website is reichardtcenter.org. I'm Jonathan Canfield, and my co-host is Hannah Anderson. Thank you, Jonathan. Our guest today is Mr. Jim Gannon. Mr. Jim Gannon is the Executive Director of the Japan Center for International Exchange. He joined the center in 2001 and now oversees a wide range of programs designed to strengthen U.S.-Japan relations and encourage deeper international cooperation in responding to regional and global challenges. Previously, he conducted research with the Japan Bank for International Cooperation and taught English in rural Japanese middle schools as part of the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, also known as the JET Program. He serves on the board of the U.S. JET Program Alumni Association and was a fellow with the U.S.-Japan Network for the Future. Mr. Gannon also is the co-editor of A Growing Force, Civil Society's Role in Asian Regional Security and Looking for Leadership, The Dilemma of Political Leadership in Japan. He has authored numerous articles and reports about U.S.-Japan relations, Asia's evolving regional order, and the role of NGOs in international affairs. So I wanted to start off by asking if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the work that the Japan Center for International Exchange does to advance U.S.-Japan relations, particularly in the field of global health. And I was also wondering how COVID-19 has changed the operations of the JCIE. Thank you, Hannah and Jonathan. First of all, it's a real honor and a privilege to be doing this podcast with you. The Japan Center for International Exchange, we're based both in Tokyo and New York. I lead JCIUSA, the New York portion of it. I mean, we really have three pillars of our activities. One is legislative exchange, bringing congressional members to Japan, diet members to the U.S., working with congressional staff as well. Second is policy studies and track two dialogues. And the third is we work with civil society. I mean, in a sense, is strengthening civil society ties between the U.S. and Japan, as well as strengthening civil society, meaning nonprofit sector, philanthropic sector in each country. And the idea behind this is to, in this era, it's not just governments dictating international affairs, but regular citizens need to have a voice in that as well. Um, as part of that work with civil society, we're facilitating philanthropy between the countries, and as I said, building up networks among nonprofit organizations. That's where JCIE came from. We're actually in our 50th year right now. And increasingly over the last decade and a half, we've worked on issues where you can leverage these three pillars to mobilize U.S.-Japan cooperation in order to make a difference both regionally in Asia and globally. So for example, we work a lot on supporting democratic governance in Asia. And to do this, you want to have the legislators engaged and talking to each other in both countries as to how they can support, you know, say in in Myanmar, Cambodia, or Vietnam moves towards democratic governance. But you also want to have the policy people engaged in doing policy studies to undergird this. And civil society is a key actor. You need to have not just the activists, but the chambers of commerce and other organizations, both in Japan, the U.S., and in other countries around the world engaged. And so we try to create a platform to do that. And we're working a lot on democratic governance, as I said. We're going to development assistance and big, big program on on global health. And in global health, we work in trying to work with the United States Japan, as well as Europe and Africa, Asia, and how do you, one, how do you strengthen the the global health architecture, better global health responses, particularly in poor countries, and we work in some specific areas, such as on HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria, trying to 
encourage US, Japan, and others to, to put more funding and, and other technical support into that. Um, so we were, when COVID-19 hit, um, we had already been very active in the global health field. Um, and so we were, you know, it was a natural area for us to work on. Of course, I'm based in New York and my colleagues here. Um, and so as a city, we really went through three months of hell. Uh, March, April, May were, were just terrible. And it was personal for me. I, I was sick with COVID. Um, several of my colleagues were. Uh, my wife is a frontline healthcare worker. And her hospital is overrun. Um, we lost a number of friends to this. So in a sense, these, these global health issues that we worked on came home for us. Um, and so it was fortunate that as an institution, we were poised to contribute globally. Um, I think just on a personal level in those sort of dark, hopeless times, being able to take part in contributing gave us um, something to get up for in the morning. And so we did that. We tried to contribute in a few ways by rejiggering our programs. One, as I mentioned, we work on philanthropic facilitation, meaning channeling donations, for example, from Japan to other countries, either the U.S. and elsewhere, and from the U.S. onwards. Um, in March 2020, the U.N. Foundation, um, United Nations Foundation, which is one of our partners, and the World Health Organization teamed up to raise money for the global response. Um, and they created a fund called the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, and that was to help the WHO work in poorer countries, but also organizations like UNICEF, the uh, CEPI, which is a vaccine initiative to support the African CDC, uh, the World Food Program. And so we teamed up with them and helped channel, raise and channel um, so far $7.7 million in donations from Japan into that initiative. Second piece is working on online dialogues, of course, and, and from March 13, we, we went virtual and none of us have been working out of our office since then, um, but we've been able to bring together top experts in the United States, top experts in Japan, political leaders, and the nonprofits that are really at the front lines in some way and have dialogues on how you share lessons, how we better respond, particularly you know, on the scientific side, as well as in areas such as dealing with aging populations. We try to contribute a bit that way too. The one gap that we see though is really, there's been limited US-Japan cooperation on the global response. We wanna see how we can try to encourage um, greater work on that front, you know, greater movement by the two governments. Thank you for your response. And I'll make sure to come back to the theme of global health cooperation in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And like you said, it's had such a devastating impact around the world and has hit close to home for a lot of us. Um, but before that, I just wanted to say that the JCIE has done such a tremendous job over the last 50 years in facilitating exchanges and dialogue between U.S. congressional staff and Japanese leaders and legislators. So I was wondering, how have American legislators such as Senator Inoue shaped these people-to-people -people exchanges that are so central to your organization? And I was also wondering, do you see any future bright spots in the Congressional Diet Dialogue? That's a good question, Hannah, and I'm glad you brought up Senator Inoue as an extraordinary figure in the field and, and the type of legislator that we need more of. One thing I've learned from being in this position is that the personal relations are just essential in international affairs. Um, in terms of, of individuals building up mutual understanding, 
creating a friendship and, and developing a sense of shared mission makes things go much more smoothly. It's hard to isolate what the impact is, but it does sort of bend the arc of history um, between the countries. And you brought Senator Inouye up. It's actually a much longer history of U.S.-Japan legislative exchange. It's over 50 years. Um, and JCI, we're proud that we were there at the beginning. Um, and the beginning was actually 1967 when the Shimoda Conference was organized in Japan. Um, and JCI's predecessor organization, founder, were, were behind that. That was the first major, in a sense, forum where the U.S. and Japan U.S. and Japanese leaders could speak on more equal levels. You know, of course, this is after the war when it was more of a big brother and little brother type relationship. But Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield led a delegation of American leaders to the Shimoda Conference. And there he called for creating some sort of standardized U.S.-Japan parliamentary exchange. That helped initiate our program and it helped other, you know, other organizations later on took the baton and also created parliamentary exchange programs between the two countries. You know, you had extraordinarily influential and, and thoughtful parliamentarians going both ways in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. And I'm thinking people like Speaker Tom Foley, who was a real giant in the field. Um, Senator Howard Baker went on to become the White House Chief of Staff. And then both Tom Foley and Senator Baker became ambassadors to Japan later on as well as people like Senator Jay Rockefeller and others who people don't realize, like Representative Don Rumsfeld, who later became Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, were important players in this and participants. So in the 90s, we'd have 50 congressional members, you know, maybe 70, 80 congressional staff going to Japan each year. And that was, in a sense, that Japan was considered a threat, you know, in the same way that we Think of China right now when U.S.-Japan tensions were still running high in the 90s. But as those quieted down, you know, and you got a decade later, 2007, 2008, 2008 you'd only have a dozen U.S. congressional members going to Japan. Um, so it kind of rebalanced. I mean, I think that was great concern for Japan. Things have since sort of self-corrected and, and recovered to a healthy level. It's interesting. Back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the congressional members who followed Japan were really looking at core issues, you know, security, trade, in a sense that you needed to cooperate with Japan, that Japan could be a threat. Um, now it's a much more organic relationship in that you have these congressional members, they have a personal tie to Japan. I mean, I know of three congressional members at least who lived in Japan at different times. I mean, there are probably more, or some of them have you know, they've hosted Japanese exchange students, they have a son or daughter or niece or nephew who was in Japan on the JET program or something else, or they want to work together on an issue like health, for example, and they see Japan as a leader, so they want to engage. And I think just getting the end of your question, that that's really the, the future of the relationship, I think, is focusing on these areas of cooperation. You know, so right. it may be democratic governments, maybe climate change, maybe things like women's leadership where you can learn from one another. That's a perfect segue because I wanted to pick up on that point that you mentioned of really how the alliance and the relationship has transformed over this last decade. We see Japan 
not really as a threat, but more as a strong partner for the U.S. in the region. And we are becoming increasingly reliant on what Japan does. And I wanted to touch on a recent article that you wrote, very thought-provoking, titled Global Health Needs U.S.-Japan Partnership, where you described now as a golden opportunity to revive the bilateral relationship. So picking up on some of these themes of, you know, interdependence, I wanted to ask perhaps what specific areas do you think U.S.-Japan health cooperation would be productive, both bilaterally and perhaps regionally, um, which is part of the argument that you make in your article. Following up on that, how can the U.S. better support Japan as an ally? Because we're really looking towards Japanese leadership more and more. That's a, a really good question. And I was saying that this is the right moment because I'm talking about the inauguration of the Biden administration, um, as well as you have new leadership, a relatively new leadership in Japan with Prime Minister Suga just coming to office in September, 20, September 2020. I think it's less about how the U.S. and Japan, I don't know if they're supporting each other, more reinforcing each other in a sense, in terms of reinforcing their domestic resolve to push forward on, on global health. I think Japan looks to the U.S. Um, to see what the U.S. is doing there. They don't want to get too far out in front. And I think that the U.S. looking to Japan, seeing Japan make advances on issues like global health, makes it easier for the U.S. also to, to carry the burden because the U.S. does not want to carry the burden alone. Um, what struck me is over the past 25 years, the United States and Japan, of course, we work on security, of course, we work on trade issues, but we've tried to expand the alliance to other areas of global cooperation. And the key area what we settled on um, had been on global health. And there have been these formal U.S.-Japan partnerships on global health since the early 1990s. Bill Clinton, President Clinton, and Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa launched the U.S.-Japan Common Agenda in 1993, and that really focused on development assistance, how the U.S. and Japan could collaborate vis-a-vis -vis Africa, vis-a-vis -vis Asia, and particularly on HIV-AIDS issues. Once the Bush administration came in in 2001, and that was kind of repackaged and, and narrowed down to the U.S.-Japan Partnership for Global Health. And there, Japan's aid agency, JICA, and the USAID worked very closely along with State Department. Then when President Obama came in in 2009, again, that was slightly repackaged as the US-Japan Global Health Partnership, um, but that was continued as well. So you've got this almost 25 year history up until 2017, and then the Trump administration allowed that to just wither away. You know, sometimes these, these partnerships are more impressive on paper, than in reality, but they provided a framework that you could leverage when things needed to be done on global health. These two countries could, they had the mechanisms to move quickly on that. So it's kind of mind boggling that this is all disregarded right now. In the article you referred to, I, I really feel that their US and Japan should be re-inaugurating some form of US-Japan global health cooperation, US-Japan global health partnership. And initially, that needs to focus on COVID, you know, and then eventually transition to the post-COVID reality. What reforms do we need? It's really three levels that you want to work on. One is on the bilateral exchanges. The two countries, we have a top research capacity, 
best laboratories, some of the best researchers in the world. They have a lot to learn from each other. There are a lot of these person-to-person exchanges, and I come back to the importance of this personal connection. There are a lot of these exchanges going on. Last year, there were 134 Japanese research fellows at the U.S. National Institutes of Health, 487 joint projects between different agencies under the NIH and Japanese agencies. We just need to make sure that these are continued, but also you know, put the type of funding and political encouragement there to support the information of the scientists and, and other healthcare professionals, healthcare researchers are trying to push forward. In addition to bilateral, I mean, you really, it's, I think the global and the regional levels are, are the other ones we need to focus on. Um, and the real game right now is the global health infrastructure and what needs to be done in terms of health security and how development assistance for health. Um, and you start with better global coordination on COVID. Up till now, the response has been, I want to say largely, almost completely led by European countries, along with the Gates Foundation and the WHO. Um, but the US and Japan have been minimally involved. They need to get in the game and make this a truly global effort. Um, and that entails putting, putting money up um, and leading in the G7 and the G20 under international forums, using their influence to ensure there's a real concerted and, and coordinated effort. This is the role that the U.S. has always played along with Japan in the past, and there's no time this is more needed now. Um, I can dig down a little deeper, Jonathan, if that's okay. I'd say specifically, you know, you're talking, there's a money piece and there's a piece in terms of international leadership. In terms of the funding right now, just for the COVID response, the estimates are that we have we need $38 billion to help the poor countries respond. When they calculate this, they're looking at four particular areas of responses. One is on diagnostics. So this is getting test kits, but also standing up laboratory systems, putting in distribution of testing materials, systems like that. This is already being led by the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria which is strongly supported by the U.S. and Japan, in some ways, creation of the U.S. and Japan. Um, they're rejiggering their entire operations to help do this for COVID testing as well. Second piece is, is treatments, um, getting them out, uh, purchasing them and providing them. Um, Unitaid is taking the lead on this. Third is really on vaccines, not just manufacturing and purchasing them, but also distributing them. The organization, the vaccine organization, Gavi, is taking the lead on this, and it, it's along with other organizations that stood up the um, what's called the COVAX facility, and COVAX is intended to provide vaccine coverage for up to 20% of the poorer countries' population. And then the fourth piece of the puzzle that you need to be supporting in, in Africa, Asia, and other South America are really health systems. Um, and... For now, that's meant underwriting the provision of supplies like oxygen, bottled oxygen, as well as PPE. But you also, you know, we need to be supporting workforces. We've seen in, in the United States here how um, the health workforces are, are overtaxed, sometimes underfunded, and that's even worse in uh, poorer countries in the world. Right. I said $38 billion. So far, just a fraction of that money has been put up and mostly by European countries, as well as the Gates Foundation. Um, Japan has pledged so far $228 million. 
as of the end of last year, um, the U.S. really put zero money completely AWOL. It looks like that may be changing with the latest um, stimulus bill that was passed does have some funding in that, but it's still to be determined. Picking up on some of what you mentioned about health infrastructure, about the vaccine, and some concern there about the distribution and development. And we recently hosted Hazel Takanaka for the Reichar Memorial Lecture. And something that he mentioned was this concern in Japan of vaccine nationalism among Western countries. Um, and in the piece, you talk about vaccine diplomacy of countries like China trying to influence some of these developing Asian countries. And it seems there's two very opposing conceptions of where health infrastructure can go. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you may be able to share a little more about that component. Sure, I think he was right to be concerned about vaccine nationalism. We're, we're starting to see this emerging right now. The rich countries have locked down most of the vaccine capacity through it, through what are called advanced commitments, purchase commitments. I think Canada has already locked down five times as many vaccine doses as they need for their population. Japan has locked down twice as many. And you're starting to see moves such as India. They have a, they're home with one of the larger manufacturers of vaccines and their discussions about them prohibiting export of those vaccines, which countries I know in Africa and elsewhere have been, you know, relying upon recent study out by the British Medical Journal that one quarter of the world population isn't going to have access to vaccines until at least 2022. The question is, what, do you, what happens internationally when you've got large populations of poor countries can't access these vaccines and they look to, you know, you go on Google or YouTube and you can see how things are happening, you know, down the block from you in the United States here. I don't see how that doesn't build up resentment, especially when, you know, you have somebody in, in South Africa, they can't get the vaccine for their grandmother, grandfather, and they're dying off. Um, and meanwhile, they've been the ones who are having the vaccines tested on them. And so it's going to be, this is an issue for U.S., Japan, all the rich countries in terms of maintaining international influence and international order. Um, and it's also as a deeply moral issue. Um, for Japan in particular, I think the other underlying concern is the Olympics. And you have the Olympics, the opening ceremony is July 23rd. Japan is committed to pulling this off. And I don't see how you do it without looking foolish unless you have much better coverage of vaccines than we have right now. And the challenge is that you can't take away the vaccines that the US or Japan or Canada or whatever we're going to be providing to their populace, it's just politically not feasible to take those away and redistribute it. So you have to instead come up with creative ways to expand the pie or make the process more efficient. You know, that just, that requires really intense international coordination and that can't happen while the U.S. and Japan are, are not in the game. So on a similar note, I know that Japan has a really long history of international aid and infrastructure development. My uncle actually works for JICA, and he's currently in Cambodia as a civil engineer helping build and manage sewage systems. So I was just wondering, do you think Japan can leverage this sort of experience in responding to COVID-19 globally? And also, do you think there are other areas in which Japan can take a leadership role? Yeah, I think there, there are 
a lot of areas. So Japan has, in terms of development assistance, it's focused a lot on infrastructure in the past. Um, so it has been sewage plants and roads, et cetera. Um, I get the sense, and many Japanese policymakers realize this, that there is a need more to shift that focus more towards global health issues, um, you know, sort of from the hard infrastructure to the soft infrastructure of countries. Um, and Japan has actually historically been among the less generous on health as opposed to other issues. Um, it's, of the ODA, the average for the major donor countries is usually about 12% of their um, development assistance goes to health. For Japan, it's 3 to 5%. Um, the good news is there are moves underway to change that right now. And I, I think the Suga administration's going to step up on that. You know, there are a couple areas where Japan is a real advantage. One is on universal health coverage. Japan instituted that in 1950s. And the important part was they didn't institute it when they were a rich country. They did it while it was a relatively poor country and still rebuilding its economy. And so that's looked at by, um, you know, other countries around the world as a real model to emulate. And so Japan has made that a priority of its own development assistance. But going forward, I think the COVID pandemic has taught us how these really, you know, down at the ground, the level health facilities and health workforces, the components of universal health coverage are absolutely critical. Um, so Japan has a lot to do on that. Uh, two other areas I'd just flag, global health architecture, and by that, I'm thinking of things such as governance reform at the WHO. The Japan is very involved with the WHO. The U.S. has stepped away. Um, we will be back under the Biden administration. Um, but this is a perfect thing for the U.S. and Japan to be discussing how to work behind the scenes to not tear apart the WHO, but to strengthen it and make its governance more effective. And then the third I would flag is pandemic preparedness. Um, actually, Japan had been playing a leading role in helping to set up funding facilities at the World Bank and elsewhere that could be tapped for the pandemic. And it was tapped for this pandemic. But now you have to look at what needs to be done to scale these up and what worked and what didn't, you know, to prepare for the next pandemic. You know, we've talked a lot so far on the role Japan can play on the international stage and kind of the grand responsibility that Japan has assumed of providing assistance. But most recently, we see that the Japanese economy and health system within its own country is facing a lot of challenges. It's been a particular challenge for Prime Minister Suga, whether to declare a state of emergency. We see rising number of cases. So I was just curious about how Japan can balance this very visible, prominent international role if it still has a lot of domestic hurdles that it needs to overcome. And we see this in the U.S. too. You know, one of the arguments that could be made for why the U.S. hasn't done much is because there's a lot of strife at home that we need to take care of first before we can re-engage on an international stage. Jonathan, that's a stellar question, and, and you're right on target there. Both Japan, U.S., I think any country, you never see a politician, or you rarely see, well, maybe Canada's an exception, you don't see a politician campaigning on how much foreign assistance, development assistance they're giving. Instead, they realize it's important and they keep it secret because it's going to be used against them. And so in Japan, that's the case. Diet members 
realize it's important to appropriate money for development assistance, whether for health or others areas, but they're going to keep really mum about it if an election's coming up. Same in the United States. But I think the reality in COVID-19 pandemic has driven this home is that it's not that you can't afford to support global health in other countries, that you can't afford not to. I mean, this you can't build up these come across borders. Um, you can't keep viruses out. You can't keep other health threats out. Um, and this is going to keep happening right now. Um, in the United States, as you know, the percentage of the federal budget that goes to development assistance, people think it's 15, 20, 25 percent. It's tiny. It's under 1 percent. The percentage of the um, gross national income that our GDP equivalent um, that goes towards ODA in the U.S., it's not 1 percent, it's 0.16 percent minuscule. Japan is in the same percentage of the gross national income, goes towards development assistance, total 0.3%. This is a, almost a rounding error. And yet it does so much for each country's, the security of their citizens or their international foreign policy interests. It's absolutely critical to be investing in this. So now focusing more on future dialogue between the Biden and Suga administrations, I know that there may be a Suga visit to the U.S. as early as February, I think, after the presidential inauguration. So I was wondering, what do you think will be at the top of the policy agenda for this U.S.-Japan relationship over these next four years, especially regarding COVID-19 and global health cooperation? I'm not sure whether that'll materialize, but if and when if and when that meeting happens, obviously the traditional security issues are going to be you have to have those on the agenda, and that's U.S. basing in Japan, and particularly this host nation support agreement as to what Japan contributes towards U.S. Uh, basing, financial U.S. bases in Japan, going to be important. Uh, China, how do you deal with North Korea, incident on the peninsula. Second piece, so it's always trade. Right now, there's not too much room for progress in that. But I think that the third area that has to be even more prominent than in the past is how do you rebuild global cooperation? And global health is is top. Obviously, it's the COVID-19 response, but it's also what is going to be the shape of the, the post-COVID world. I mean, I think the motto should, for this should be never again, you know, and how can the U.S. and Japan step forward to ensure that this does not happen again? Second, probably, is climate change. It's a top priority for the Biden administration. And I see that Japan has proposed a ministerial dialogue on climate change, which is a step in the right direction. Third issue you don't hear too much about, but it's working together to support democracy in Asia. Now, President-elect Biden has pledged to hold a summit of democracies in his first year in office. And it's clear that he's going to you know, both symbolically, but I think substantively work on unshoring up democracies around the world. But this has a lot of salience in Japan, too. It's I'm, I've been surprised, but the diet members I deal with, how interested they are in supporting democratic governance, both in, in Southeast Asia, you know, somewhat about China, but I think also in and of itself, it's important for them as well as in other countries around the world. And I think the fact that they've looked at the United States and seen the U.S. step back from the scene has uh, prompted a rethinking of this. And this is something you couldn't say 10 or 15 years ago, but I think Japan is going to surprise people with the, 
the moves that it may make on that front. That's really insightful. Thank you. And I just want to thank you for helping our listeners kind of understand uh, what's going on and kind of the configuration of the post-COVID world and what we can expect. To finish us off, I just wanted to ask, you've really dedicated, you know, a good portion of your career to strengthening the U.S.-Japan relationship, the people-to-people exchanges, but also on important policy topics and issues. And as we see the Biden administration start to re-engage with allies and take some of these issues more seriously or shift focus and attention, what type of advice would you give to policymakers or officials that are working on the U.S.-Japan relationship? Someone who has really thought about it for the last you know, couple of years. Oh, goodness, you're putting me on the spot. From the Japanese side, I think that Japanese policymakers don't see any alternative but to hug the United States tight. And so you see Prime Minister Abe did, we really did an extraordinary job of maintaining a good relationship with the Trump administration. And you're going to see those incentives on the Japanese, you know, leadership to do the same in the Biden administration. But I think underneath the surface there, the the confidence and the reliability of the United States has been shaken. You know, of course, Japan is concerned about the security guarantee that the U.S. makes through the U.S.-Japan alliance. But it's also equally concerned about the level of U.S. global leadership. So I think one thing is really projecting positive U.S. leadership in the world, and that involves a return to international institutions and upholding the international sort of rules of the road, um, but also at the regional level. So it's showing up for regional forums, East Asia Summit, you know, and different regional initiatives like that, having a much more proactive U.S. role in it. So I think it's one, it's the leadership that shows that the U.S. is reliable. But at the same time, there's got to be a real degree of humility coming into this and, and a sense that we really need to partner on things, not just demanding that Japan moves and carries the burden, but having this as a cooperative shared mission. I think that a, it's an attitudinal issue as well. I think that U.S. policymakers coming in like that will do very well. Well, yeah, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Mr. Gannon, and I just want to thank you so much again uh, for taking the time to be here with us today. We really appreciate your insights on the U.S.-Japan relationship. We're excited to follow uh, the future work and projects of the Japan Center for International Exchange. It's been a real delight. Thank you so much for having me here. And we also want to thank all of our listeners and to stay tuned for more podcasts in this upcoming year. And we wish you all a safe and happy new year. Asia in Washington is a production of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies, Johns Hopkins, SICE. You can visit our website at reischauercenter.org.